you take your Bibles, please, <coughs> excuse me, take your Bibles out and open them to the book of Titus and the second chapter, and I'm going to undertake to do what no preacher has ever done when he promised he was going to, and I'm going to preach a sermon to the women. Gentlemen, you need to listen in as well. So join me in standing if you would, um, and pray for me, y'all, because this is terrifying. <laughs> Even men I respect greatly, I hear them say, we're going to talk to the women, and then they just start talking to the men, because they're scared. So, I I acknowledge that, but we're going to try. Titus chapter 2, starting at verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give to us grace in this day, and that you would help us to see the beauty and the glory and the power of your truth. And we thank you, Father, for the provision that you have made in our lives of godly mothers of wives who love and honor you, of sisters and daughters, God, who are growing in grace. And Father, we just pray that in the midst of all of the things that we do, that the voice of the culture would be silenced and that the voice of Christ would be exalted, that women would reclaim the glory and the beauty and the power of what you have made them to be, and that you would stop the continual attack on womanhood that our culture is leveling against them. Father, we ask that you would aim us at Christ in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Womanhood in general is maligned and disparaged in our culture. And if you don't see it, you have not been paying attention. Motherhood and parenting are being actively attacked and dismantled. And on every front, we are told that they are unimportant patriarchal institutions. We're instructed to be silent about and complicit with the attempts being made to readily replace parents with government schools and social conditioning. President Biden stated at the end of April that there is no such thing as someone else's child, no such thing as someone else's child. Our nation's children are all our children. His remarks echo what has been being pushed by the radical left for decades. Melissa Harris Perry from MSNBC stated in 2016, We have never invested as much in public education as we should have because we've always had that kind of private notion of children. Your kid is yours and totally your responsibility. We haven't had a very collective notion that these are our children. So a part of it is that we have to break through our kind of private idea that kids belong to their parents. I'm going to say that again. We have to break through the private idea that kids belong to their parents or kids belong to their families and recognize that kids belong to whole communities. Responding to Hillary Clinton's book, It Takes a Village, Bob Dole quipped, it doesn't take a village to raise a child, it takes a family. He wasn't wrong. Women who want to be biblical are demonized by the culture. Women who defend women's rights to raise their children, to be a mother and a wife, are at best considered ignorant and backwards, and at worst, they are considered dangerous. 
But all of this terrible, sinful ideology is completely counter to what the Bible consistently teaches about womanhood and family. The Bible offers praise and honor to motherhood. It offers glory and purpose to womanhood that is written in the very code of our humanity. So I want to start with the idea that having a right understanding about gender and womanhood and life in general begins with sound doctrine. We live our faith beginning in our homes. And so as you build a home that honors Christ, as you build a home where the truth is consistently taught, as you build a home where your children grow up hearing the truth of God's word, understanding that God's law is God's law, and understanding that it is best and that it is right and that it is true, you build in them the ability to stand against the encroaching tide of the cultural pressure that is constantly increasing. This begins with us. And so where there is a failure in our culture to adhere to biblical standards, we have to recognize that the problem began in the church. The world didn't just dream this up and break down a strong family unit and say, ha-ha, we win. The family unit was in decay, and the world crept in through small cracks and crevices because the church let their guard down. We stopped teaching the truth. We stopped being faithful to shore up families. We wanted what the world offered. And in wanting what the world offered, we left our children undefended. So the very first thing that has to happen is we have to recognize that it is not the pastor's responsibility to teach your children the truth. It's my responsibility to equip the saints for works of ministry so that we can do the job that we're called to do as the church. My responsibility to teach children primarily is those who have been entrusted to me. Your responsibility to teach children are those who are entrusted to you. Collectively, we can do that together. I equip you, you equip them. But the primary education of your, of your children in, in things of God, and I would contend in all things, rests with you. It's your responsibility. It's nobody else's responsibility to teach your children. And this is biblical doctrine. This is what God teaches us that we are supposed to do. It is our responsibility as parents to raise up our children in the discipline and the admonition of the Lord so that they can know who God is. Paul begins with speaking sound doctrine. He begins by saying, I want you to instruct people in what the truth is. I want you to instruct them in how they are to live their lives. And I want you to instruct them. And then the end of this passage at verse 5, he says, so that the word of God may not be blasphemed. The bookends of it are good doctrine. The bookends of it are the truth of God's word. And in the midst of everything else that we're going to talk about this morning, I want you to understand the truth that this is rooted and anchored and because of God's word. Let me put a point on this for you. How you live your life and how you obey God's commands will define how the world believes the things that you say you accept as truth. And you need to understand that at the outset of that, your children are included in the world. Because nobody's born saved. Them being born into a Christian family does not guarantee their salvation. So you have to recognize that as a parent, your primary evangelical responsibility is the children that God brings into your home. Okay? you got to understand that. You have to know that that is the truth. That you are witnessing to your children by living Christ out faithfully in front of them. And if you don't think they're watching... You're wrong. They're absolutely watching. 
And where parents tell their children, hey, look, you need to pay attention to the things of God. These things are important, but they can't be bothered to do it themselves. Which message do you think the children are going to believe? They're not going to pay attention to what you say, but they're going to follow every single thing you do. And we need to recognize that truth. We need to understand that this is our responsibility to teach our children, but according to Scripture and according to this passage, it is a little bit more... There's a deeper bench, if you will. There's a lot more that goes on than just you having to figure this out on your own. So, I want to look at the pattern that Paul gives us here. And we need to understand that, first of all, women teach women how to be women. Okay? This is not something that just occurs naturally. There, there are feminine traits and there are masculine traits and there are, there are the realities that God made two different kinds of people. There's men and there's women and men are men and women are women. But a whole lot of the nuance of how we live that out is not a natural sort of thing. It's something we have to be taught. So, who's going to teach young girls how to be women? Well, it shouldn't be drag queens. It needs to be women. It needs to be godly women who will teach them what it looks like to be a godly woman. And so this occurs when women begin spending time with girls and with other women to teach them how to be a woman. And specifically, their mothers in particular are the first model that little girls will see to know how to grow up to be a woman. But other women in their lives can participate in the process and should. Extended family, church family, all of these kinds of things. Your interaction with young girls will give them the model that they need to see to know how to grow up and become godly women. So for the women in the room who don't have children, this is a great opportunity for you to pour your life into somebody else's child with respect to the parents, knowing that it's the parents' responsibility first and foremost. You want to have the parents involved in the process. But this is your opportunity to pour your life into somebody else's child and be a part of the process to show them what being a godly woman looks like. Now, this means that there's some responsibility in your life all the time. This means that you may not be aware of the fact that that little girl that you're working with is watching you right now when you're doing something you shouldn't do. You just need to assume that they're always going to be watching because as soon as you begin to pour yourself into a child's life, the thing that happens is those children start looking at you. Amen? Amen. They start paying attention. They start seeing you where you live. They start seeing how you live where you live. So if you're going to do this, you need to recognize that what you're doing is pouring in something powerful that, that is going to need to be sustained all the time. So women teach women how to be women. This means that men are not qualified to teach a woman how to be a woman. Okay? It also means that men can't be a woman. But that follows. That's a whole different sermon. We'll leave that aside. Men are men. Women are women. God is God. And I do need to say along that aside that this is the core of the battle that's raging around us in the culture. The very idea of gender fluidity is an assault on God and his right to be God. It is an assault on God and saying that he has not made us appropriately, that he does not have the right or the power to make us as he sees fit. He does not have the right or the power to define us by our DNA. 
and he does not have the right or the power to create us according to our God-given biology. At the heart of the fight, it's always sin and rebellion. So don't drink the Kool-Aid, beloved. Don't drink it at all. Draw a hard line, give it a hard pass. Absolutely not. We will not imbibe the nonsense. There are two genders, men and women, and they are created by God according to his image. Period. And God allowed Adam to name the creatures. And he named Eve Eve because she, not he, she was the mother of all living. And the word Eve means life giver. Okay? The reality is, is that God has woven into Scripture a strong, emphatic declaration that there are two genders and that womanhood is a special, glorious precious thing. And I'll be really honest with you. I don't understand it. It's part of why I equipped preachers to say they're going to do this and then they don't, because I, I don't really know. I know what the Bible says, and so I'm going to do my best to show and share what I, what I see in Scripture in this passage, but I can't tell you exactly how to be a woman, but older women who've walked the path that you're walking, they can help. So establish those relationships and build them. Younger women, if you're lost somewhere and you're alone and you don't know how to figure out what it is that's going on, you need to reach out to some of the older women in the church and say, can you help me? I'm confused. I don't understand what's going on. Don't reach out to some man and say, well, my husband's mean to me and I don't know how to respond to it because you know what he's going to see? He's going to say, hey, this is an opportunity to break up a marriage and maybe, you know, have a little something. And so many women fall into that trap. They don't like their marriage. They don't like their situation. They don't like what's going on in their lives. And instead of reaching out to another woman, another woman, reaching out to another woman, they reach out to some man in their life. Some predatory boy in a man's body is what it really is. You need to understand, you are the best defense against that kind of encroachment. Pour yourself into other people's lives. And if you find yourself in a bind, you need to be reaching out for help to appropriate people. You need to be seeking the kind of help that honors God. So in this conversation, we need to also see that not only do women teach women how to be women, but in very specific instruction, women teach women how to be wives. This is an instruction that God gives us in the Scripture. Look again at what Paul tells us here. Titus chapter 2. He says, The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands. So what are they doing? They're admonishing. What is admonishing? Teaching. They're instructing the young women to love their husbands and to know how to love their husbands. So the very first thing that they teach them is to love their husbands. Now the Greek word here is philandrous, and it means that you must love him because he is your husband. It comes from two Greek words, andrus being man or husband. Phileo is the, is the root word of the love, and so this means love for your husband is the specific word here. It's a word that that the Greek makes only for this situation. It's not a love that you have for anybody else. It's a specific love for your husband because he is your husband. You must love him, period. He's not worthy of that kind of love, but neither are you. Okay? 
The covenant, however, that you two made together before God is worthy of that kind of love. So honor the covenant that you made. The covenant that bound you to him is a covenant that you made with God. And that covenant is always worth whatever price it takes to keep it. Amen. You are bound to this. You have given your oath. You have given your vow. You are bound to this covenant. So love him as the covenant deserves that he be loved. It doesn't mean that you're saying, oh, he's wonderful all the time because I know these guys and I promise you they're not. But the covenant that you made says, I will love him as the covenant is worthy of. I will love him as the covenant that I made with God deserves for me to obey it. So that's the first part of loving your husband. Secondly, though, they also teach them to reserve themselves for their husbands. This means dressing modestly, ladies. It means that you do not need to be dressing in such a way that every man out there looks at your body and says, oh, yeah. Now, there's, there's some gray area in here. I'm not going to give you a dress code. We're not those kind of Baptists. But I would say that in general, the rule of thumb should be your clothing should frame your face and not your body. It should put your face on display and not your shape. Okay? The reason for this is that what's underneath your clothing is reserved for your husband. It's not for anybody else. So preserve it accordingly. Be careful about what you're promising other people by how you dress. So dress modestly. Be faithful is implied in that. And also a part of that is to be properly affectionate towards your husband. I'm not going to bust out all the details here. You guys are reasonable adults. You can understand what I'm getting at. But give yourself to your husband. Love him. Love him spiritually, love him emotionally, love him physically, love him faithfully. Be careful in this relationship. Now, it gets really awkward for some guy to talk to some woman who's not his wife about these kinds of things, which is why we hand it off to you and say, you guys have that awkward conversation. (laughs) But that's okay. Because when I'm speaking to a man, I feel completely free to have those conversations. It doesn't bother me at all. I'll talk to him about it. But I'm not going to have those conversations with a woman. It's not appropriate. And it's, it's just not right. So for, if, if these protections are going to be put in place, if you're going to have some help shielding your marriage, you need to have women in your life who can be the go-to person. And also, you need to be that woman in somebody else's life. You need to be faithful to build those relationships because they need them. He also tells us that women should teach, their women, should teach other women to respect their husbands. Now this word respect is a loaded word in our culture. It means to give honor unto and to give deference unto based upon that person's abilities or position or individual worth. So there's three opportunities for him to get it right, three opportunities for him to get it wrong, but if he's your husband, he's already got one out of three. His position demands that you respect him, according to God. It's part of that covenant. But let me let you in on a secret, ladies. He needs that. He needs that honor. It strengthens him for the fight. 
When a man feels like he is not respected at home, he feels like every place he goes, his back is exposed. He feels like every place he goes, he's under attack and he can no longer defend himself from the other attacks because the attacks at home are brutal. So he needs your respect. So whatever you're dealing with to try and figure out how to respect your husband, let me tell you honestly, dig in deep and do it well because it will bless him and when you bless him, he will bless you. Okay? Respect him. Give him the honor that he is due. It also means that you can be his friend. Now, this is a strange sort of thing. I mean, I've I've told you this in one way or another. I know at least a couple of times, but I'm going to put a pin in it again today. When God gives instructions, he doesn't give needless ones. Okay? In Ephesians, when he gives the the men the command to love their wives, he uses the word agapeo, which means an unconditional godlike love. It is a love that transcends everything else. It is this love without any condition whatsoever. He never gives that instruction to women. He gives the women the instruction to philandros, which is based on the word phileo. Okay? So, what's the deal here? Well, Men, in our relationships one with another, we're good at respect. It's sort of how men figure out who they are, where they are, how they fit in the order of things. We figure out who we give respect to, who we have mutual respect for, and who we kick. (laughs) It's not right, but it's true. And that's our natural sort of interaction. We don't do agape well. It's hard for us. It's not natural to us. Ladies... You guys agape pretty well. It's part of motherhood. It's written into your souls. But you're not so good at the friend thing. I'm just saying. I've I've talked to a lot of people over the years, men who've worked in atmospheres surrounded only by women, and they say, oh my goodness, I do not want to work surrounded by women. It's horrible because there's all the biting and backfighting and chewing on each other because you guys don't do friend well. You do agape really well but you don't do friend well. And so the instruction that God gives to you is to be a friend to your husband. The instruction that God gives to him is to agape you, to be a lover to you in all times and circumstances, regardless of anything else. God presses us at our point of weakness. He doesn't give us needless instruction. So, What does it look like for you to be a friend to your husband? Well, you need to be a person who is interested in his interests and is involved in the things that he enjoys, and you need to talk to him, and you need to just be there with him, and and you just need to be pouring yourself into his life, and what you will find is that as you do that, you're going to find him reciprocating with love that you can use and need. It's just the way God built the dynamic. It's, It's why we are different. So... You also need to be his helpmate. You were created for him. God made you to be that helpmate unto him. And there is nobody else who will ever be what you need. And this mindset is is always being attacked by the culture. The culture is always telling women, if you're unhappy in your marriage, just get out, go find somebody else or somebody better. You deserve to be happy is the phrase that I hear so often. On a personal level, I love all y'all, and I think you deserve to be happy. But let me tell you the truth. You don't deserve to be happy. Nobody does. We're all rebels against God. We're all wretched, vile creatures. 
And what we deserve is hell. We deserve to be condemned and cast away forever. Happiness is illusionary. It's based on circumstances. You can be happy and over the moon today because your circumstances are good, but if those circumstances change tomorrow, all of a sudden you are the most wretched person in all the earth. We're not promised happiness in Scripture. We're, We're promised joy, but joy is a deeper thing. Joy is a thing rooted in who you are in Christ. Joy is rooted in our identity that God gives us because He is who He is. But happiness isn't promised in Scripture anywhere. And if your only goal in life is to be happy, what you're going to find is that when you leave this guy to go be happy over here with this guy, give it a year or two and you won't be happy with him anymore either. And you'll find yourself being kicked from one person to another to another, not by them, but by yourself. And by your own desire to have something that no person can fill in you. Because happiness says, it's your responsibility to make my life whole and complete. And nobody can do that. Joy says, I'm full in Christ, and I want to pour into you. And we can all do that. Okay? So if you're going to be his helpmate, you need to recognize the truth that you have to always be pouring into him. Don't compare him to other men and desire him to be like them. Instead, fix your eyes on Christ and help him to be like him. Do all that you do to aim him at Christ. Do all that you do to build him up to be the man that God called him to be. You need to learn how to be a woman from the role models who did this in your life. And you need to recognize the truth that in the end, you also have to submit to him. Submission is a really hot topic word in the church right now. There's a giant swath of especially Southern Baptist life where, where there is a great rebellion against the idea of submission. And they want to rip the Bible into shreds and make it into something that it isn't and shouldn't be. But the truth is this. Submission is not belittling. It is recognizing and obeying the laws of God's creation. And it is partaking in a blessing that God built into the very structure of creation itself. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, there's a whole lot in this passage that we're not going to have time to unpack. And I know it's going to raise questions, and I'm going to just leave it sort of like it is. I want to draw one particular point that Paul's making here out. So we're going to start at verse 7, and he's talking about praying in public is the context of the conversation. Verse 7, Paul says this, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor the woman independent independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so also man comes through woman. But all things are from God." So what we see here is that when we get this right, this picture of submission under the authority of God is glorifying to everyone. So man is honoring God by leading his family and leading them aright, aiming them at the truth of who God is. And the woman is being glorified by doing this. She's being honored in the eyes of her children. And she is also pouring out glory on her husband's head as she honors him in this way because woman is the glory of man. It's testifying to everyone, even the angels. So when Paul says they should wear a cover on their head because of the angels, 
which I'm not going to unpack and get into right now. We need to recognize the truth that what he's saying is, is that the way that we live our lives is a testimony to the powers and the principalities in the heavenly places. This is not the only place that Paul says this. Everything that God does in our lives is testifying of the rightness of God's way of doing things. The proof's in the pudding. When we get this right, everybody wins. When they make laws in a city that don't punish crime and allow people to steal randomly and do everything that they want to do without any fear of consequence, what happens to those cities? Well, all their Walmarts close, among other things. The cities burn to the ground. And you can look across the nation and you can say to yourself, where people refuse to obey God's law, it's always worse than where people will obey God's law. Without exception. Where people say to themselves, I do not need to pay attention to that thing that God says I want to do. Instead, I'm going to do what I want to do. It's always worse. So when we deal with submission, whether you like it or not, please understand that I didn't write this. I didn't make this up. God says, this is how it works. And the main reason why this is how it works is because we all live under authority. And this is what submission really teaches. It teaches us to recognize that we all live under authority. And ultimately, ladies, when you submit to your husband, you are submitting to God. I'm not saying he's God. Don't take that out of context. When you submit to your husband, you are actively submitting to God by submitting to him. that's, That's a glorious opportunity. That is a glorious opportunity to display the truth of who Christ is. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 22, Paul writes this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. So there's the parable of marriage. When we get this right, our lives are a parable of the gospel. And he is the Savior of the church. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. So this is the structure that allows a society to exist and to function smoothly. And the chaos that we're seeing in the nation at large is because this structure begins in the home. And where we will not give proper precedent to what God says in the home, we can expect the structure that is outside of the home to fall apart. How many of us have heard somebody complaining about the behavior of children in the world today in the last week? How many of us did it ourselves? Probably all of us. Most people understand at some level that crime is a destructive condition that erodes our cultures and our cities. Some people understand that the results of the policies that remove respect for authority and the rule of law harm us all. But the evidence is clear that when we remove the foundation of home and fabric of the family as the core of life, we we remove the very architecture that allows us to have a society where people respect authority. So when children are taught in the home, you don't need to respect authority either by how you listen to me or how you listen to your mother or how I listen to your mother or listen to your father or that whole dynamic in that relationship. What goes on there teaches children about respect and authority. 
without ever saying anything directly. And when you get that wrong, it has implications not only in their lives, but in the world at large. Because the people that are making the policies now have ideas about respect and authority that came from someplace, don't they? Just think about it. They learned it somewhere. And the policies that they're implementing means they didn't learn it from Scripture. They didn't learn it from godly parents. Children learn submission and respect from how mothers submit to and respect their fathers. Look, if you're, if you're in a bad situation, I'm sorry. I don't think anybody in this room is, but I know there's people listening in other places and will be listening in other places. So if you're in a bad situation, I'm really sorry for that. I really am. And I would say to the men in those bad situations, suck it up and get this right. That's a different sermon. I'll talk to you on Father's Day. <laughs> but ladies, you're called to submit to your husband. You're called to respect him. And you are called to obey him because by doing that, your children learn how precious that dynamic can be. And fathers, when you step up and honor God, your children learn that living under God's authority and fulfilling their responsibilities under God's authority is a good and precious thing. You want to ferment rebellion and, and hatred in your children? You live out of authority. Go ahead. You want to live out of authority, you can know without question that the result in your children's lives will be destructive. Amen. You have to show them this. You have to live under authority. You have to model this behavior. Dads, you are submissive to God and you are submissive to all of the other authority in your life. Ladies, mothers, you submit to all of those authorities, but you submit primarily to your husband. As long as what he's telling you is not contrary to Scripture, you submit to him. And I know it's hard in some cases. But that's the truth of what God says. And if you'll lean into God and trust him in the midst of it, you will find that God will sort your husband. And you'll get this right. So women teach women how to be women, and women teach women how to be wives, but women also teach women how to be mothers. They teach them how to love their children. Now, just like philandros is a word that is specific to the relationship between a wife and a husband, the word here is also specific to children. The word is philotechnos. And that is because phileo and technos are love and children. We jam them together. And what we have is a new word which says, teach them how to love their children, how to have love for their children. Now, the remarkable thing about this is that the love that is there is emphasizing the reality of the relationship. So at its very core, you are to have a love for your children that exceeds and surpasses the love that you have for anybody else. All respect to the authority of the office of the president, but he is dead wrong when he says that my children are his and not mine. He is dead wrong when he says that my children are societies and not mine. Because nobody, and I mean nobody, will ever love my children like I love my children. They can't. Because they're not theirs. Even the one that God gave us out of, 
out of natural order that, that we just adopted into the family. Nobody's ever going to love him like we love him. They can't. This isn't a hindrance. This isn't a weakness. This is a glorious thing that God built into us. But the culture is constantly coming against it, saying you shouldn't love your children special. You shouldn't love your children extra. In fact, you should just send them off to somebody else and let them raise them. I mean, my goodness, how young are we sending children to full-time care these days? If, I'm not including daycare, but I mean to send them into public school. They're going into Head Start at what, three? Two and a half? All day away from their parents. What's the assumption that drives that? Somebody else is more qualified to raise your children than you are. Maybe somebody has a lot more education than you ever will. Maybe not. There's some highly educated people in this room. But you know what? Nobody will ever love them like you do. Nobody ever can. And the first thing that you need to teach the younger women, older women is that that love is precious and beautiful and right and proper and that it is worth the effort of your entire life being poured into it. Love your children. Give them everything that you can out of who you are because nobody else will ever be you. Now, love is less a feeling than a verb. It is unconditional and it is what fights for what is actually best for somebody, not what they want in the moment. Now, this, this is going to cause us, if, if we're listening, to understand that when the culture uses things like love everybody, the culture's making some assumptions that are not consistent with biblical truth. Because if I love you, if I really love you, I'm not just going to give you a buy on doing something that I know is going to destroy you. If I genuinely love you, I'm going to call you on your stuff And I'm going to say to you, you can't do that. This isn't right. This is not going to end well for you. If I genuinely love you, I'm going to do everything in my power to stop you from doing that which will harm you. And that's just as a relationship as pastor to flock and man to man and friend to friend. How much more will I do this for my own children? If I love them. And if I define that love according to biblical principles instead of what is convenient or easy. Look, it's really easy to just let them have their way because then you don't have to listen to them whine and fight. Go ahead, whatever, I don't care. That's easy. But it's also destructive. You're buying your momentary comfort at the expense of their eternal souls. That's a really crummy exchange. It's not something that we ought to do. So, mothers, what's your role in this? Your role in this is to be the first line of defense in the relationship that you have with your children to help them see what is right and wrong. You need to do this in concert with your husband. You need to do this in concert with their father so that dad sometimes has to be the heavy. And sometimes it comes down to the conversation about what is authority and why does it matter. It's a really great conversation to have with your kids because it does open the door to share the gospel. If we understand what the Bible says about our fallen human nature, we know that every single one of us is born in active rebellion against God. Every single one of us is born hating God. 
And we don't want to submit to His authority because His authority is contrary to ours. We don't want to submit to what He tells us to do because what He tells us to do is not what we necessarily want to do. The heart and soul of all of it, the heart and soul of all of it is the reality that we must acknowledge that we all live under authority. And that by living under that authority, we are teaching our children how to rightly relate to God. So this means that sometimes discipline is in order. Now what is discipline? Discipline is structure. Discipline is correction. In the context of raising children, the scripture says, raise them in the discipline and the admonition of the Lord. Admonition is what you say to them. Discipline in that context is what you do to them. It is physical reproof, physical correction, it is spanking, it is punishment, it is something along the lines that is going to correct behavior, generally painfully, so that they take the lesson to heart. There is a place for that in how we live. You need to love them enough to be disciplined in their lives as well as dad. Because what happens often is this. Mom may not like doing it. Mom may not like being the, hard, the heavy, the, the disciplinarian. And so she says, well, you wait till your father gets home. And then after dad deals with it, she's kind of along in the background going, you know, I'm really sorry that dad had to do that. I wouldn't have. So what's he te- what are you teaching about authority right then? That there's tension and conflict in the house. So look, here's the deal. If they need a spanking and dad's not home, let them have two. It's a two for one special. They get one from you, and then when dad gets home, they get another. That was the rule in my house, always. If I got a whipping at school, guess what? I got one at home, too. If mom had to spank me when dad got home, I got another one. I didn't like it at the time, but I can see the wisdom in it now. Don't don't live in such a way that you build conflict into their minds that may or may not be there. And if it is there, then you need to sort that out, refer back to the earlier point about submission. (laughs) You need to talk. You need to get this done. We also know that we teach them what is love and, and what is right by helping them understand truth and helping them honor God with their choices. This means that sometimes the right course of action is to warn them not to do something as the children get older, to give them a set of consequences and say, when you do this, this is going to happen, and then they do it, and so you let them enjoy the consequences of their crummy decisions. I warned you that if you did this, this was going to happen, and you chose to do it, and therefore this has now happened. And you let them understand that the consequences they're not enjoying are the result of their bad choices. It helps us see the reality of responsibility. It helps us see the reality of the authority under which we live. We need to know that sometimes we have to just do what is right on their behalf. And the choices that we make for them about what is right, sometimes you do have to give it a hard no and put your foot down and say, absolutely not, we're not going to do that. And you have to do that because the choices that they're going to try and make are going to damage them. I'm not talking about just painful circumstances, but real harm. You need to do everything in your power to protect them. We do not take our children and throw them on the sacrificial altar of the government schools and say, ah, they'll sort it out. 
That's not how we raise them. You need to do everything in your power to protect them from the things that want to destroy them. And if you think that anywhere, even here in Little Onega, Kansas, there is not some section of it that wants to destroy your children, you're not understanding the truth of the world in which we live. This is a fairly safe place, but I promise you it's not 100%. You need to discipline them according to the Word of God. So that means teach them the truth, teach them the basic principles of living by the truth, give them very practical advice and counsel about how to live that out, and model to them what godly womanhood looks like. Model to them what godly living looks like. 1 Timothy 2 Verses 9 and 10 says, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves with modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. So the best adornment that you can have for your natural beauty is to adorn your life with godly good works. God calls you to do this not only for your own sake, but also for the sake of your children. Because they're going to behold that in you, and they're going to see that in you, and they're going to desire that in you. And they're going to want themselves to put on that same kind of godliness that they have seen in you. Now look, I'm not foolish enough to believe that any of you guys are ever going to get this 100% right. But I will say this, if you aim at this consistently, you're going to get it right more than you're not, and your children are going to see it right more than it is. That makes sense? Because they're going to see your heart in it. They're going to see what you're trying to do. They're going to see what you're trying to be. And they're going to understand at some level, maybe not being able to articulate it fully, but they're going to see at some level that mom loves God and she wants to please him. And they're going to find that that's beautiful. Okay? Your children are going to see it right more than it actually is. And that's all right. This fleshes out our command to model for your children what Christ being formed in us does in our lives. We adorn our lives with the good works that come from loving Christ, and Christ allows our lives to adorn the gospel with the good things that he builds in us. And it it makes your life into a powerful, powerful testimony. So, what this means is that ultimately, women are teaching women how to be women, Women are teaching women how to be wives. Women are teaching women how to be mothers. But above all things, women are teaching women how to be Christ-like. They're teaching women how to put on Christ and to wear Him in the way that is only capable of being done by a woman. So Paul gives us this list of things that we need to understand here in Titus. So turn back to Titus, please. Titus chapter 2 again. And he says this. Teach the women. We're going to pick it up again at verse 4. Admonish the young women to love love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, and obedient to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So there's five things listed out here that are a responsibility to be teaching. And the first one is to be discreet. Now that word might not necessarily be the same thing that it reads in your Bible. Some places it's, it's rendered to be chaste or to be pure. Chaste is also listed. Um, but it's, it is to, to have discretion is to be aware of the demands of the situation and to behave in a sensible manner according to the situation's requirements. Now I'm not talking about situational ethics. 
I'm talking about situational behavior. Sometimes you have the right and the freedom to go in and do something, to blow up a situation or to act in a way that would be completely right, but to do it is not righteous. And so you are called to act with discretion and to evaluate the situation and say, yeah, I could do that, but I'm not going to. Now, let me just say this as a rule. When, when we're talking about godly women, you guys tend to get this right more naturally than hot-headed men. Not always. There are some examples and there are some exceptions. But as a rule, you guys tend to understand what discretion looks like in somebody's life. You tend to want to protect people from the consequences of their bad choices. You want to kind of shield them. You want to kind of guard them. That, that's discretion in action. And so we want to teach women how to be discreet. We want to teach them how to be discreet. also means to be sensible and to be moderate in your behavior. And then finally, it means to let your mind guide your body and not let your body guide your mind. And I think that this application of discretion is the one that the world has decided above all else we're going to undo. Because the, the culture says, if it feels good, do it. If you want to do it, go for it. Just enjoy it. Nobody has the right to tell you what to do with your body. Nobody has the right to tell you how to live your life. Nobody has the right to put anything on you that you don't want to wear. Nobody has the right to put anything on you that you don't want to be. And our culture has destroyed this whole idea of discretion in general, and the church has absorbed that. The church looks at young women today and has nothing to say about the, the indecent clothes that are often put on, has nothing to say about the indecent behavior that's going on, has nothing to say about the foolish and reckless things that are going on in people's lives that may not be outright actively sinful right now, but will lead to sinful behavior if it's not checked. Boys and girls riding alone together in cars. You guys know this. You know my children were never allowed to do this. And I've told you before on, on more than one occasion that I knew my daughters were married. Not when I pronounced them, because I did. Not when they gave them the kiss. I knew they hadn't kissed yet either. But what hit my heart is when they got in that car with that young man and drove away. That moment for me said, oh, they're gone. Because that, we never allowed that. Why? Well, because cars are closed off places in which lots of bad things happen. There's no accountability. Yeah, it's freedom. The set of wheels is awesome. But there's a lot of dangerous things that can go on there. This is not to impose my rules on you. I use that by example simply to say that discretion would tell us, don't put yourself in a bad situation. Discretion would tell us, pay attention to the circumstances that are going on, and be mindful of it. We need to be careful of the witness and the testimony that we give to other people. Ladies, this is largely up to you. And, and it, it, this is what's being expressed in Scripture, that the older women are to teach the younger women. Be mindful. Be careful. Have some discretion. To be chaste which means to be pure and without moral defect, without moral blemish, without the need for an excuse. Okay? So just think about that for a minute. 
If your behavior, if the things that you're doing are not necessarily wrong, but could be taken wrong, and immediately when you're doing it, you're thinking to yourself, if somebody sees me doing this, I'm going to have to give an excuse for why I'm doing it. Don't do it. Amen? Just don't do it. Pay attention to the reality that your life and your testimony actually matter. These go together in regards to character and testimony. Discretion and chasteness go together. That's not all. Paul also says, teach the younger women to be homemakers. It means one who works in the home, caring for it, and caring for those who live in it. Now, I am not going to unpack the giant can of worms about women working outside the home. I understand that sometimes it's necessary because of the circumstances that our lives are in. I understand that in a situation where there are no children and where there's a whole lot of other things that can make it what it is, but I would say that the model that Scripture plainly gives us is that the primary responsibility of caring for the home and caring for the people in the home rests with the wife and mother. Okay? And, and we need older women to come alongside younger women and teach them what that looks like. Now, specifically, implied in being a homemaker is also the prohibition about reaching for roles that are not assigned to you by God. By one example, I'm going to speak in the field that is my own expertise, and I'm going to talk about church life and women in the ministry, just very briefly. Second, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, so back up a couple of books. And we'll start reading at verse 8 of chapter 2. I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but with which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Look, here's the reality. You are not the head. You are not designed to govern. You are not designed to rule. You are not made for that responsibility. You have been made to support those who govern and rule. You have been made to live out the truth of who Christ is so that those who have been placed in authority over you will be supported. You are to shape your world by shaping your children, by shaping your sons, by shaping your daughters, and by helping your husband to be the man that God created him to be. Now, I want to say this very carefully, and I want to say this very plainly. This is not about worth. This is not about value. This is about aptitude and about responsibility. What is the basic cause and reason for the conflict between the sexes? Anybody know? Evil. Evil. Okay. I'm sorry? 
they want to be equal. They do want to be equal. But if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, who sinned first, Adam or Eve? Adam sinned first, right? And we say, well, Eve ate the apple. Okay, she did. But Eve ate the apple or whatever it was. The Bible doesn't say an apple. It just says a fruit. But when Eve ate that, the Bible tells us that Adam was there with her. That means that Adam sinned by abdicating his authority and responsibility. And when he abdicated his authority and responsibility, he basically stepped back from what God called him to do and said, I don't want that. I'm not going to be the person who says no. And the woman swept in and said, I'll be the person. I want to be the one. And at the, at the heart of it, what that amounts to is that the curse that is placed upon woman, God says that your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Now, often we attach that desire to the verse before, which talks about childbearing. But that's not what it's attached to. It's actually attached forward to the idea of rule. So at the very beginning, when that whole dynamic got broken, God instituted the curse on on fallen humanity as a punishment for our sin. And in doing so, he set up the battle of the sexes because the woman always desires to rule, but God will not allow the man to escape the responsibility. You're there. You, gentlemen, are responsible. Ladies, it's not your job. Step back. Okay? And I know that's not popular, and I know if anybody outside of our church family watches this, I'm going to get all kinds of ugly emails and hate mail, and people will throw eggs at the church or something like that. But let me be very clear. This is not about worth. It is not about value. It is about aptitude and role designed by God specifically to fulfill His will. In my area of expertise in the church and in scripture and in theology, let me tell you very plainly, the Bible is not unclear about whether or not women should be preachers. The Bible is abundantly clear. So right away when somebody says, oh, I go to this church and my my pastor, she's a real nice woman, don't go to that church. Because the truth is not being honored there. Period. It doesn't matter. What else is right? It doesn't matter what else you like. Because at the core of it, if we distance ourselves from the truth of God's word, we distance ourselves from God. End of story. Now, what applies to the church also applies to our roles in the rest of the house, in the rest of what it is to be a homemaker. You are called to submit to your husband's authority. It means that, that you guys don't have a council of equals, you have a council of almost equals. And if you disagree on what to do, in the end, if your husband feels strongly that it's time to do it, and I would tell you gentlemen, be careful with this, it's not something to be done all the time. But if you guys are in disagreement and your husband feels like this is something we really need to do, he gets the say. Now coming with that, he also gets the beating if it's wrong. That's the issue of responsibility. Authority says I have the right and the power and the obligation to make the decision. Responsibility says I bear the consequences. And every man who comes to Iron Man knows that my basic definition of masculinity is what? We bear what others cannot. Biblical masculinity says a man bears what others cannot, period. You want to be a man after God's own heart? You stand up and you bear the burden. 
It's how God modeled it for us. It's how God showed us how to live. And let me tell you, that kind of masculinity is absolutely unwelcome in the culture, which should tell you I'm right all by itself. <laughs> because if, if something is true, the culture is going to hate it. So, ladies, submit to your husbands. You are not the head. It's true that if men will stand up and be men, then women will be free to be women. But it's also true that when you depend upon us to be what we're called to be, we are compelled to rise to the challenge, to be more for you and to care for you by our growth and faithfulness. But when you tell us that you don't need us, we respond by backing away. I'm not saying this is right, but it is truth. When you tell us, I don't need you, then our response is to back away. It's sin, and it's wrong. The christ honor response would be to lean in and do more, to love more, to grow, and to say, well, I've, I've allowed you to think that you don't need me, but I'm going to show you that you do. I'm going to do everything that I can, and I'm going to do everything that I can to lift that burden. But the very natural, very human response is, don't want me? Fine. I'll step back to find somebody that does. I'll go to my buddies. I'll hang out here. I'll go do this. I'll go do that. Whatever. Together, women and men have the power to help one another grow in grace and to demonstrate to a ruined culture that God's way is best, that the results are always improved lives for everyone involved. Look, if you get this right, if you live this out, you're going to find that God honors those who honor him. Okay? God always honors those who honor him. So do what is good. Do what is right. Women, teach the younger women to do what is good. Positive moral qualities of a very general nature is what this word good means. But specifically, what it means is that it's almost always the good that you do for others. Amen. It's almost always, when it's used in this way, about how you pour your life into making somebody else's life better. Now let's talk about sphere of influence really quickly. I'm, I'm out of time. The sphere of influence begins with your marriage. Not your children, but your marriage. So the very first source by which you do good is unto your husband. Then it expands to your children. Then it expands to your family, to your church family, to your friends, to the world at large. You have a limited capacity because of limited resources and limited energy to do all the good things that you want to do. So I would say to you, make your life better by making sure that you tend to those things which are most important first. All of this comes down to this simple truth. We are called to help one another live out Christ. Men helping men. Women helping women. Families helping families. We are called to do this as the body of Christ. And we are called to pour ourselves into those who are outside of the body so that we might draw them into the body.
God's model for how all of this works is completely contrary to what the culture says is right and true and good. But it's still true. It's still right. It's still good. It's still God's way. And in the midst of everything else that you do, I would commend to you the responsibility, ladies, to live your life in accordance to God's principles. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day and help, Lord, anything that I've said that's amiss, I pray that you just take it away. But let the truth of your word be planted in our hearts so that in all that we do, Christ would be honored. God, I thank you for this body that hears the truth and um, accepts it. And I pray, Lord, that you would let the, the truth of this message be carried into the world at large, that it would be heard and that it would be heeded. And God, I pray that you would just show forth your glory and let Christ be honored in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.